medical department, only two go to the bench, and we are more than a dozen. You don't train, you only recover. That's a, that's a situation. Preparation, hard work, confidence in overcoming those difficult moments. Today we're still outside Liverpool and we are going to the first part of the medical test. Welcome to this Football Medicine and Performance Podcast. I'm Eleanor Trezise, a member of the FMPA education team and your host for this episode. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Joanne Parsons and Dr. Shiri Becker. Dr. Joanne Parsons is a physiotherapist and associate professor at the University of Manitoba in Canada. Dr. Sherry Becker is an associate professor in injury prevention at the University of Bath. They have published a review in the British Journal of Sports Medicine on anterior cruciate ligament injuries that discusses gendered influences on injury rates in girls and women. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So in this episode, we're going to discuss ACL injuries in women's football. So I've already provided a bit of an introduction there, but in your own words, please tell us about your journeys to date and particularly what has led to your interest in gender differences and in injury rates. Yeah, so I'll start. So thank you so much, Eleanor, for inviting us and for having this conversation with us today. My background is in human movement science and sports science. So I studied that in South Africa and I completed my PhD in Australia at the Australian IOC Research Centre for Injury Prevention, where I focused very much on implementation research and on knowledge translation research. So I would say that's really where my interest comes from in terms of getting injury prevention research out into practice. After I completed my PhD, I moved here to the University of Bath in the UK, where I have broadened up my research slightly to focus on looking at women and girls in sports, looking at safeguarding, and as you know, the ACL and gendered research that we'll speak about today. My journey is uh, more of a clinician journey. So I come from a physiotherapy and athletic therapy background. So I worked clinically for a number of years before I went back and did a MSc and a PhD. And uh, it was during my, well, both my MSc and PhD, actually, that I focused on ACL injury prevention using um, exercise-based interventions. And so my interest has been both clinical, but then also academic And over the years, just reading lots and lots of papers about the ACL injury disparity in women and being frustrated by the kind of the blaming of biology. And so for the issues and so Steph and Cherie and I uh, came up with this review, this paper in BGSM that kind of explored some new ways of thinking about things. That's really interesting. So focusing in now on ACL injuries, can you briefly explain what the ACL is? and why it's an injury that so many are concerned about, especially in women's football. Yeah, I can take that one. So the ACL is stands for anterior cruciate ligament, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know. Um, and it's a major ligament of the knee that helps to stabilize the knee, prevents it from anterior movement or movement in, um, in the forward direction, as well as rotational movement. It's a concerning injury because it can have 
not only short-term, but long-term consequences as well. So generally when people rupture their ACL, they can be out of their sport for at least nine months. That's generally the, the minimum amount of time that they should be uh, in recovery. Nine months to a year, it could be even longer than that, depending on what level of play they're trying to get back to. And then longer term than that, and not just for sport participation issues, but generally people who have ACL injuries develop osteoarthritis earlier than they normally would perhaps, and also leads to early joint replacement. So long-term serious consequences from this injury, um, as well as the, you know, missing out on your sport and potentially all the opportunities that that can afford. Okay. Now there's more than one mechanism by which the ACL can become injured, but do women tend to suffer a different mechanism to men? That's a really interesting question. So yes, there's non-contact mechanisms and contact mechanisms generally. Non-contact mechanisms are things like where someone will plant their foot and pivot, or they'll try to slow down from a really, you know, they're running really fast and then there'll be a very sudden deceleration. Those kinds of things would be non-contact. Generally, women tend to experience that mechanism more often. Then there can be contact mechanisms. So yes, you could be tackled by somebody else or run into something. There's some sort of contact that causes the injury. That can be more common in men just, and I'm thinking about North America, like contact uh, tackle football would be a very common sport where ACL injuries happen. And for the most part, those would be contact um, from a contact mechanism. But it's interesting because there is some evidence in the literature to suggest that the mechanism right at rupture is no different in men's in men and women. And so we're not really sure whether there is actually a gendered or sexed difference in the actual mechanism because that what happens right at the moment of rupture is similar in men and women. That's really interesting. And let's now talk about some of the risk factors for ACL injuries, especially those that might explain the gender differences. Uh, So there's been lots of discussion and recent research into the roles of, for example, the menstrual cycle and anatomical differences. Um, But there could, of course, be non-biological influences at work, which you discuss in the review you published. So grouping risk factors into being either modifiable or non-modifiable, could you run us through some of them and also expand a little bit on what you mean by gendered influences? Yeah, absolutely. So as Joanne alluded to um, a little bit earlier, the uh, reasoning for this review was uh, that we had seen a huge focus on those kind of anatomical, biological, physiological, hormonal uh, risk factors um, that have been discussed, I'm sure, as all of you are aware, very widely in the media, but also within sport and exercise medicine more broadly. So drawing on those conversations, we decided to have a look into the literature to see what the literature said about risk factors, and also to combine that with some kind of social science type of analyses to have a look at what are the risk factors and what are the risk factors that we're not talking about. So often we hear about, as you um, have just said, often we hear about risk factors such as different phases of the menstrual cycle or uh, women's hips uh, being wider, so those Q angles. And um, we wanted to move the conversation away from hips and hormones as being primary risk factors um, for ACL injury. 
So having a look at the research and thinking about women's bodies, we decided to take a life course approach to having a look at what could lead to ACL injuries in women and in girls. And as we know, women and girls are three to six times more likely to have an ACL injury. And so for us, and, and what we discuss in this paper, is thinking about uh, not only how girls possibly are more prone to injury, which is what we often hear. We hear that girls and women's bodies are simply inherently more prone to injury. And rather thinking about um, how we are actually made more prone to injury over the course of our lifetime. So for example, if we start from the time that we are babies and even before we're born, little girls and little boys, we're placed into those boxes and we're treated very differently from the time that we're very young children. So boys are often encouraged to be more active and play outdoors and have that kind of rough and tumble play which develops their bodies physically. Whereas young girls are actually encouraged to be more passive, more indoor play, you know, wearing often clothing that isn't conducive to that kind of active play. And so we take this life course approach to see how that might accumulate over a girl's and woman's lifetime to actually make her more prone to injury. So this helps us, we think, to take this kind of social gendered environmental approach to ACL injury when we're thinking about risk factors and what might lead to injury. So I'll pause there and pass over to Joanne if you want to add anything more to that. Sure, I was just thinking as you were talking, Sheree, about how our approach, we think one of the advantages of, of our approach is that these gendered influences are much more modifiable than if we think about biological or physiological things that are really not modifiable. So if you think about the Q angle, nobody's changing their hip width. Not that that is, that is really even an identified risk factor. It's often thought to be a risk factor, but there really hasn't been conclusive evidence to show that it is a risk factor. But we can't change things like that. We can't ethically change people's menstrual cycles, even though there's very limited evidence to show that that's a risk factor. So this gendered approach opens up really new avenues of ways that we can intervene early, as Cherie was alluding to there, we can intervene early just in the way that we treat people differently. And we can change our behavior, change the expectations, change the actions that we take. And so we really think that that's one of the positive outcomes potentially of our approach. And so to just jump back in there, we want to kind of flip the script on the way that we talk about these modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. And if we look at the literature, something like sex or race are often positioned as non-modifiable risk factors. That's just who we are. And we want to kind of change the conversation around that to think about things like sexism and racism, which are things that we can do something about to change somebody's risk profile down the line. So that's really a lot of what our approach is about. So now that we've covered what ACL injuries are, why they're so concerning and some of those risk factors, Let's move on to what can be done to address this problem. There's been lots of calls for more research into this area, but in the meantime, players are still suffering ACL injuries. So if you were working with an elite women's football team right now, what would you recommend is changed or put in place to help reduce the number of ACL injuries? Well, the one thing that the last 30 years of ACL research has 
told us and provided to us is that there are exercise-based intervention programs that work and work really well. So programs like the FIFA 11 plus, the PEP program, Australia's, I always forget the name of Australia football's program, but it's relatively new and it's out as well. So we know that if we implement those exercise-based interventions, and they're quite minimal, you know, 15, 20 minutes, a couple of times a week, we can reduce ACL injury risk by a huge amount, 50, 60%. So that would be the very first thing that I would recommend is that any any girls or women that are participating in sport, even men, a lot of this uh, research is done around boys and men as well, can look at those programs and implement them, make sure they get done and done well, that they're not kind of thought of as um, secondary and not really needed. So that would be the first thing that I would say is, is really needed. We already have this information, let's use it. Um, and then the other thing that I would say is just that we need to start just taking a step back and looking at our environments in more general ways and thinking about what are what are the actions that we're taking and why are we doing those things? What, what beliefs are those actions based on? And do they have consequences that are un, unintendedly putting people at higher risk of injury? Sheree, I don't know if you want to chime in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, I would agree with everything that Joanne has said. And so, you know, often with this work that we're talking about in these gendered environments, it can seem like big things that we want to change. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the sexism and the racism is something that I think we're all working towards changing within sports spaces. But that can often seem really big and really political. And so, as Joanne says, noticing where we are doing things in taken for granted ways. So, for example, you know, we might just be um, still referring to things as girls push-ups and boys push-ups. Changing that kind of language is really helpful. Also, noticing within a football club where women's teams for example are always kind of getting second best so needing to use the resources after the men's club do or after even the youth clubs or youth teams do that kind of programming does have an effect in terms of you know where women see themselves within that hierarchy that is created and often that's just because resources are scarce but I think if within clubs we start thinking about why we're doing that and how this programming might be more equitable that can make a difference as well. That's great thank you both you know for providing that pragmatic advice there but unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. But I found this conversation really interesting. I'm sure the listeners have as well. So thank you very much for giving up your time and for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Eleanor. Listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the FMPA podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Alternatively, please check out the podcast section of the FMPA website. Links to any research papers or other resources mentioned will be provided in the description of this podcast episode including the FMPA article written also by Cherie, Joanne and Steph. Thank you for listening to the Football Medicine Performance Podcast. Have a great day. Bye.